Hey, and welcome to Sign of the Crime. This is Remy Ramirez. This is Q McGrath. Uh, hi, it is the last day of Mercury retrograde. No, Mercury retrograde. And I don't know what day it is. It ended yesterday. Yeah, but it ended yesterday. Yeah. But it, it feels like it lingered. Can we talk about how, well, remember how you talked about how like we're in a border town? I feel like we're in a Mercury retrograde border town. Yeah, we are in the retro shade and Q and I have been trying to record. You have <laughs> I feel no like idea. We start every podcast like this. The well, suffering, the pain. Well, we're not technical people. So there's that. Oh my God. Even with By my Gemini way, rising. What? Oh, is those supposed to make you technical? This is your fault then. I blame you. And that's the way it is. Did you know that on October, every planet except Venus is going to be in retrograde? Well, that is not uncommon. That actually happens. Oh quite a bit. Yeah. I didn't need to know about that, but, but pretty soon here, I think once we get out of this retro shade period, uh, retro shit, retro shit. Yeah. God, retro bullshit period. Um, once we get out of that, we'll be all, all the planets will be direct for great. For, yeah. To like April. Right. I need to look again at my stuff. I don't have I the dates in front of me. I think it's till April. Okay. And I'm just, clinging to hope god damn <laughs> so, uh, help us. why yeah also quintana's in a blizzard and oh and also we couldn't record the other day because you were puking yeah and uh and i pooped my pants oh yeah and you shit yourself <laughs> yeah uh that was new for me i've never done that before and um i take back every time i've laughed at people who said they've done that when they're sick it turns out that's a possibility um, Is it, was it like a shirt like you thought yes it was a, yeah totally well no it wasn't like it was like it wasn't like oh i i farted and i thought it was a uh you know it wasn't that it was like oh i'm not gonna make it <laughs> Oh, like, oh no! It was like my stomach went. And oh, I'm like, god. oh god! Oh god! <laughs> running to the bathroom and I could feel it. And I'm like, okay, this is where we're at today. This is, this is where we're at. <laughs> well, one time, uh, I have this lovely story. One time, I was not sick and I was just like feeling myself and I was doing morning yoga when I was living in Puerto Rico. I remember Rico. this. This I is was when doing- you're on that that lemonade cayenne pepper thing, right? Oh my God, you're right. I was doing the master cleanse. I you were doing the master that. cleanse for like a month. I was like, you have to eat something. You're going to die. You're like, it's fine. Uh, it wasn't a month, but it was 10 days. It did feel like a month though, for sure. <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to do naked yoga in my house. Mm, that's just a little too, that's fine. And then it wasn't a two. And then turned it wasn't. Out. Yeah. No. And I was naked on, like I said, on my yoga mat. So that was cute. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like yoga mats are relatively easy to clean though. You got that going for you. Um, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a worst case scenario. That's true. I also wasn't in public, so that's good. Yeah. No one was around. Yeah. That's really key. And I will forever be grateful to my body for waiting till I got home. Cause I had been, I had spent the entire day at, at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. And that, oh, that's nice. That would have been worst case scenario. Or like, cause I had to pick dude up from daycare. If I had shat myself in front of his teacher, that would have been really embarrassing. Oh, too. That would have been so sad. One time I threw up in a Trader Joe's. <laughs> oh, were you hung over or just not? No, I don't know what happened. I, it was when I had just moved to the Bay, I was living in Oakland. I had gone into the city to meet up with some friends. I'd have a, had a glass of wine, but I didn't have enough food in my stomach, but normally that doesn't make you barf. But yeah, I took the BART back over to Oakland, went to Trader Joe's and beeline for the bathroom and barfed in the toilet. And I was like, thank you God for for there being no one in the bathroom because I would have just thrown up in the hallway and it would have been really gross. Oh, this is uh, a cute, it's a cute way to start our pod. Well, <laughs> I mean, so if we're going to talk about it, like you remember I had hyperemesis with both my pregnancies, the number of times that I have just like straight beeline for a bathroom in a grocery store. Like, yeah. mm, I can't yeah. even count so yeah. many times. So many times. And I have just been like, getting to someone's house and being like, Hey, I need to throw up in your bathroom. And they're like, okay. And remember the spitting? Do you remember the spitting? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When Q was pregnant, she was so nauseous all the time that she would carry just a spit cup around. (laughs) Just spit it. There was, so there, there, there's a, uh, it's one of those words that starts, it's like P S I T Y L I S or something like that. There's a word for it for when you're pregnant and you over, you create an overabundance of saliva. Just Um, honestly, don't get pregnant. Um, 
And so I, you can't swallow it. There's so much um, that you can't really swallow it. But even if you could, most of the time when you're doing that, you're also incredibly nauseated and puking everywhere. So uh, you can't swallow it or you'll just puke it up. And that's Ugh. less charming even than spitting it. So <laughs> I would just walk around with a uh, water bottle that I spit into. And I was a tutor at the time, you remember? And that's so right. I had to, like, <laughs> kids are like, what are you doing? You're like, like, ew. Yeah, I have to say, <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky enough that they all loved me that they enough to deal with that shit. But yes, explanations had to be made. And there was the moment where in the middle of the night, I was betrayed by myself when I grabbed a water bottle to drink water. Oh, it was no. not water. Oh, no. oh, oh God. Oh God. Oh God. Oh my God. I am. And the cringing. trauma of that experience. I will oh, never get past. I am cringing in my soul. My oh, every, everything like is the viscosity. Oh man. That is gnar. That is rough. fucking gnarly, dude. It was rough. Um, anyway, so everyone's signed off now. So it's just yeah. us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Q. Want to talk about Tanya talk Head? about murder? <laughs> sure. Oh, man. Okay. Actually, I wanted to say a couple things before we got started about the Bundy epi. Um, if that's okay with you. Yep. Right ahead. Okay. So... Because there were a couple of things where I was like, shit, I kind of maybe should have unpacked that a little better. So the first is something I, I mentioned, but I didn't really go into. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt like I should have. So um, that is in the Bundy epi, we talked about his Sagittarius stellium in specific. He has Mars, Moon and Lilith conjunct Sag. I focused on the fact that he has Pluto trying that conjunction, which is obviously super important, but there's a Sag aspect um, that I touched on. And that is that Sagittarius has this kind of insatiable desire aspect and to the outside world, a lot of times, like the, all the jokes and memes about Sag are like, oh yeah, they can't commit to anything. Right. So it looks like an unwillingness to commit or to be grounded. Like they're always single they're always traveling. Yeah, they, sure. They won't just get a job. They're always in school, whatever. All those things, as far as I'm concerned, are symptoms. They're not the root issue. And this is going to go back to Bundy in a second. The root issue is this deep need to know and experience more. And you see it in the way that like, you know, Saj doesn't want to read about Machu Picchu. They want to go to Machu Picchu. They want to take a class about Incan culture, you know? Um, and also like, they're all, they're always in school forever. That's because there's always so much more to learn, so much more to know. So as soon as they finish one degree, they're off to get another degree in something else, right? And they never get a fucking job. These are all like examples. And this won't apply to every Sag, but it's really important when we talk about Ted Bundy because it's what takes this Plutonian obsession that he has and this proclivity for death that you see with Pluto and Scorpio, sexual abuse, deeply resentful violence, all that Plutonian stuff. And it brings it to this like fucking frenzied, crazy level um, because normal Plutonian tendencies aren't enough. And normally we think about Sag as being very happy-go-lucky and that's true. But when you combine the two, it's like he needed to experience more and see more and do more absolutely obscene, weird-ass shit with the bodies. Like there just wasn't a way to satiate um, that compulsion. Yeah, like he wasn't into IPAs. He was into murder. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I wanted yeah. to bring in that piece because I, I wish I had talked about that a little more, but anyway, here we are. And I also wanted to say, if you have Chiron and Scorpio, please know that I am not saying you should be in therapy because I think people who go to therapy are crazy. Oh no. I'm saying <laughs> that from the perspective of a person who has a Scorpio stellium and who has moon conjunct Pluto, uh, mine is not a high horse. That Scorpio energy is thriving within me. So I say it as a friend, if you have an intense Scorpio placement like that, particularly that one, join me, join me, go to therapy with me. It really, I mean, not together, but no, that'd be weird. That'd be weird. No. I, don't, I don't know you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, but I know I hear what you're saying. It's like we all have a Chiron, so we all need to be in therapy. We all need therapy. We all need therapy. Come, jump on in. The water's yeah. fine. It's going to be fine. It feels good. Just do it. 
I mean, it sometimes it doesn't, but then eventually it does. So that's yeah. No, I mean, you should know it's going to hurt a little, yeah. <laughs> but but you'll get there. You'll get there. You'll get there. Okay. Speaking okay. Of someone who needed therapy. Um, yes. I oh, did not get it. <laughs> my God. Yes. Yeah. Go. So um, we're going to talk about Tanya Head today. Uh, known also that's that's what she called herself. Her name was actually Alicia Esteve Head. Esteve is that correct? Head. Yeah, that's it. Um, Esteve Head. And most of you have probably never heard of her, but you have heard of 9-11. And that was... Uh, that was her scam of choice. She chose to work on, on people who went through 9-11. So this, this story is pretty bad, even though she didn't kill anybody. No murder. Um, Palette no mur- this week. Well, 9-11 was a lot of murder, but, uh, but not by her. But, but nonetheless, this story has a lot. So, okay. So the year is 2004. There is a woman calling herself Tanya Head. She starts an online group for survivors of 9-11 where they can share their stories with other people who are trying to process that, you know, the trauma of that awful day. She is immediately popular, well-liked, as well as respected. And this is undoubtedly not only because she presents herself as a strong, confident, well-educated, selfless woman, but also because her story of survival is fucking harrowing, to say the least. Um, Her first few posts are fairly pedestrian, just discussing her need for a community that shares her pain. She also wants to support other people who are struggling. But eventually she opens up and she tells her 9-11 story. This is that story. So Tanya Head claims to be a Harvard undergrad who earned her master's from Stanford. In 2010, she was in New York because she was considering a move there. And while she's there, she visits the Twin Towers, as one does. And as she's leaving, she hails a cab and a handsome, tall man steps in front of her and attempts to steal her cab. She argues with him about it. And after a little back and forth, he acquiesces, saying, all right, you can have the cab but only if you promise to call me mm. and he hands her his card. I know. Right. Cause that's mm. how it works. That's exactly how it works. And his name was, we're not going to say his name. Um, <laughs> that'd be rude to his family. But anyway, uh, so he, she, she takes his card. She's taken aback, but she's charmed. So she gets in the cab. According to her, she promptly forgets about this charming man. Two weeks later, she's back in the twin towers and she runs into this man again in the lobby as fate would have it. He offers to buy her a cup of coffee. She accepts. They have a little mini date that turns into a three-hour conversation between what she she describes as instant soulmates. Tell me if you've seen this movie. Yeah, I'm Uh, sorry. What is this this rom-com called? Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, She and Dave begin a long-distance relationship. And eventually she moves to new. Did I say his name was Dave? You were like, we're not going to say his name. But actually, I wonder if... Yeah. Okay. So this guy's name is Dave. I'm not going to say his full name. Yeah. You actually can find it pretty easily online if you want to, but his name is Dave. They begin a long distance relationship. She moves to New York to be with him. She gets a job at Merrill Lynch, uh, the seat of the devil. You guys know that, um, probably given her, this is probably pretty easy because she has this exceptional academic pedigree and they buy this beautiful upscale apartment on the Upper East Side, and they get a dog named Elvis. And they just have the kind of relationship that their friends describe as disgustingly good. They are loving, absolutely compatible. They rarely fight. And they're so uniquely good for each other that Tanya describes them as almost the same person. Ew, weird. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's just blissfully happy with Dave. No red flags. In the spring of 2011, <laughs> she comes home from work one day to find Dave in a coconut bra on a grass skirt, dancing to Hawaiian music with badly made Hawaiian food prepared for her and two first class tickets to Maui leaving the next day. Again. Honestly, I'm sorry, but also, yes, please. Like this boyfriend sounds really amazing. He really does. And that's the red flag for you. Yeah. Um, he proposes, she accepts. Uh, so he proposes this trip. On the trip. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, so he's like, let's take this trip. It's going to be magical and special. She accepts. They fly off to the tropical heaven. David spared no expense or effort. Uh, He has had her measurements sent to a seamstress to have a beautiful white dress made for her while they're on the island. And he has this heart made of rose petals set up on a white sand beach of course, where this officiant waits for them so they can swear their love to each other. So this is... They've discussed marriage. This isn't an official marriage. It's not legal, but this is like a commitment type ceremony and it's good enough for them at the moment. And he, but he does officially propose. I want to marry you. Uh, And they call their friends and family and they tell them that they are engaged and that they've gotten Maui'd. 
Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Don't ever say that again. No. <laughs> nobody, nobody ever do mm-hmm. that. Don't Tanya's do that. thrilled to be engaged to Dave, and she feels that her life is pretty much perfect. Enter September 11th, 2001. Tanya is chairing a meeting for Merrill Lynch on the 96th floor of the South Tower when she hears a noise on at the, the, what she knows is the North Tower at 8.46 a.m. She sees fire and what looks like an explosion, like we all did. She counts the floors, realizes that Dave's floor has been affected. So she makes a beeline for the stairs, hoping to get to the 78th floor, where there is an express elevator that will take her directly to the street level in 60 seconds. She describes a chaotic scene on the 78th floor, people screaming and pushing. And at one point, a man loudly says, ladies, this is not the Titanic. It's not women and children first. In the midst of this, Tanya hears what sounds like a plane landing on a runway, and suddenly the world gets turned upside down. She sees the wing of a plane above her. She feels the wind getting sucked out of her lungs, and her body goes flying. When she's wake up, when she wakes up, there's just literal hell all around her: fire, smoke, dead bodies litter the ground, mortally injured people moaning on the floor nearby. She sees her assistant a few a few feet away from her, decapitated. And a dying man pulls off his wedding band in this moment and hands it to her, begging her to return the ring to his wife. And she promises to do that. She's in pain from head to toe, but her arm has been horribly injured, almost severed from her body. It's literally hanging from her shoulder by a thin strip of skin. Another dying man implores her for help and he pulls on her nearly severed arm and she screams in pain and horror, sure that he's going to rip her arm off. She closes her eyes and when she opens them again, a young man with a red bandana over his nose and mouth emerges from the smoke. He hugs her. I'm not sure it's the moment for that, but this is her story. He hugs her, gets her to her feet, helps her out of the lobby down the only set of stairs that is still accessible. She's tucked her injured arm into the waistband of her pants, and she follows this young man, who the world will soon learn was actually an equities trader named Wells Crother. She follows him down to a makeshift emergency headquarters in the lobby of the South Tower. She is singing sting songs to herself to try and keep herself calm. At this point, she's lost a great deal of blood, and she's not doing very well. So when she gets down the stairs, a fireman picks her up, carries her outside of the faltering building, and just as they get outside... She hears sharp cracks and realizes that the building is about to collapse. This fireman, not to be outdone by this falling building, throws her under a nearby fire truck, dives in under there as well, and then he shares his oxygen tank with her until emergency services are able to rescue them both. As they're carrying her away, she loses consciousness. She wakes up six days later in the hospital. She spends about three months there, and she isn't able to return home until after Thanksgiving. The heroic doctors managed to save her arm, but nothing can prepare her for the pain that comes when she is told that her fiance, Dave, did not survive this tragedy. Slowly, she begins to put her life back together. She did find the widow whose husband's ring she promises to return, and she goes back to work. She looks for some sort of therapeutic outlet, and that's when she finds the online forum for the survivors of 9-11. That's when she finds it? That's when she founded it. Oh, she okay. She found it. Okay. Yeah. Founded? Yeah. Created? What? No, more know. like created than discovered. That's what Got I'm it. going for. Got it. So this story is a lot and it makes many members of the forum feel really silly, almost unworthy of the pain they are carrying because, you know, if Tanya can manage to keep going after everything she's been through, what right do they have to complain? Tanya, however, always reassures them that this isn't a contest, at least not when they'd win and that their pain is valid and that everybody in this group is in it together. And many members of this group find her inspirational. She is very involved, constantly supporting her fellow members as well as leaning on them for support. The group evolves when it is merged with a support group created by 9-11 survivor Jerry Bogax to form the World Trade Center Survivors Network. So this is no longer just an online group. They now meet. Okay. Almost immediately, almost immediately, Tanya works to put herself to the forefront of this group. She's now technically a 9-11 widow because she found an attorney and a sympathetic judge who allowed her to jump through all the legal hoops she needed to be able to marry Dave posthumously. So as a 9-11 widow and a survivor, she has a lot of social and political cachet and she uses it. She meets with political figures, including New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Boo. Yeah. <laughs> Boo. Red flag number two. Not cool. Uh, she she charters legislation that 
aims to get right to get rights for the survivors in 9-11. She gives tours at Ground Zero where she tells people her story of survival. And it's through these tours that the parents of Wells Crother, the man in the red mask who had led Tanya to safety, hears about her, that there's this woman they had not yet known of claiming that, that their son had saved her. Because the guy, he passed, right? He, yes. Wells, Wells. Uh, is a heralded figure from 9-11. He saved a lot of people before he was killed when the South Tower, tell, South Tower fell. Okay. That's what I meant to say. I'm not sure if that came out correctly. With the exception of Tanya, all of those people had been interviewed by reporters who had done stories on all of like this, the equities trader and everybody that he'd been in contact with. Um, and they were really curious about the fact that they hadn't yet been able, they didn't know about Tanya. So the family asked to meet her and she agrees, but only on the condition that it'd be very private. Uh, she claims that she's met with other families. They expressed a lot of anger that she lived and their loved one hadn't. So she was more cautious now when she met with people. Fair enough. Eventually, she did meet with Allison and Jefferson Crothers and it went Crother, Crother. I think it's Crother. Okay. And it went well. In fact, she told them she, she'd kept some of her burned clothing from that day and that she was going to put a scrap of that clothing in a plaque for them. Meanwhile, World Trade Center Survivors Network is going through a bit of a revolution. The founder, Jerry Bogax, is told by Tanya that the group feels he isn't advocating aggressively enough for the survivors' interests. And that conversation is quickly followed up with a meeting chaired by Tanya, where Jerry is unceremoniously told that his services are no longer required. He's voted out of the board. She's like, listen, we all matter here, but some of us matter more. I matter more, Jer. So... So a new newsletter comes out the next day showing that the board now has positions, a hierarchy, including Tanya as the president. And her work is not going unnoticed. She's, you know, the energy I'm getting. What's that movie with Reese Witherspoon? You know what I'm talking about? The movie with Reese Witherspoon where she's- No, no, no. Where she's sleeping with the teacher and like she, um, fuck, everybody out there is screaming at this right now. It's the one where she's like really type A and she's sleeping with her teacher and she's like running for class president doing all the things. I don't know this movie. Okay. Uh, it, everybody else in the world, except <laughs> me, I I know the title, but I can't remember it. Uh, it's the one with Matthew Broderick where like Matthew Broderick tries to take her down and instead she takes him down. It's not legally blonde. Mm, no, Matthew Broderick is not illegally blonde. Okay. I don't know. All right. Well, is it the one where she's like kind of dumb? No, this is the one where she's like really smart. Oh, but she, okay, no, but she seems know. honestly. Okay. Well, we'll have to Google that in a minute because okay. that's going to bother me forever. But anyway, okay. it's that kind of very insidious energy going on. Um, so journalists are starting to show a lot of interest in her story and her work, which is literally incredible. There are a few feel good pieces that come out in various periodicals. And then just before the sixth anniversary of 9-11, the New York Times comes calling. They are very interested in writing a heartwarming piece about this amazing woman who survives this great tragedy of our time and not only makes it out the other side, but is thriving in this new life as an advocate. Uh, At first, Tanya is really reticent, saying she's not interested in that kind of attention, but eventually she acquiesces for the good of the Survivors Network. She's like, just kidding. I'm so interested. So interested. (laughs) This isn't Tanya's first experience with the media. And since she had frequently expressed anxiety about being interviewed, which is expected given her circumstances, she's generally treated with kid gloves by these interviewers. The New York Times, however, the interviewer, his name is David Dunlap. He's an investigative reporter and he's a little less gentle. They're having trouble authenticating her story and shock they're pressing her to mm, they're pressing her to provide some proof to verify these events in this life that she's positing as truth so they've talked to dave's family and they don't know about her and they don't know about an engagement they're like and the they're, fuck? they're like huh they're like yeah you know the one that married him after he died no idea they don't know anything about that so merrill lynch has no recording has no record of her well first of all they don't have any record of holding office in the Twin Towers. And they also have no record showing that they'd ever employed anyone named Tanya Head. And she actually had, because she told people that she still worked for them, she had rented offices in various buildings around so that people could come to her office. Like people from the Survivors Network could come to her office. Wait, have it. So like when people were like, hey, you know, we'll meet you, we'll meet you at work for whatever. She would rent offices around town so that oh. people could come. That's how, oh, yeah. so it looks like she had an office. Yes. Okay. Yes. So the New York Times can't find any hospital records proving her claim. 
that she stayed for three months. There are no social media pictures of her and Dave, no wedding registries, no friends that can verify their relationship or even that they knew each other. Tanya immediately panics and calls her friends who are puzzled by this level of hysteria. They're just like, give them some proof, you know, anything, give them medical records, pics from the trip to Hawaii, pay stubs, anything. At the same time, these were close friends of hers that are incensed that this reporter is harassing this poor woman who's been to hell and back. There are some people who have been a little suspect of Tanya's story. Unsurprisingly, one of them is Jerry Bogax, that ousted co-founder of the Survivors Network. Let me tell you something about this bitch. <laughs> he's like, let me tell you about Tanya. <laughs> so he he's he's called by David Dunlap, and he realizes pretty quickly that this is not going to be a feel-good story, that this is an investigation. Another suspicious Survivors Network member is a guy named Brendan Chellis, and he had been like, this story sounds crazy. And so he did some really superficial internet sleuthing sleuthing and he finds lots of verification proving the life and death of tanya's dave he just didn't see any proof that he was in fact tanya's dave so when tanya begins to speak openly about her distress over this upcoming newspaper article he starts to see blood in the water everyone else though absolutely snow they're in her corner outraged that any reporter would be so insensitive, so cruel to someone who would survive such unspeakable horror and is now only working to better the lives of those who'd also been touched by this distress, this disaster. So one of these friends, her name is Janice, suggests that Tanya see a lawyer and she does that. And she brings Janice along for moral support. Janice waits outside for a few hours while Tanya meets with the attorney. When that meeting's done, the attorney invites Janice inside her office for a wrap up. So the attorney is saying things like, it's okay. You'd only known Dave a few days and it's okay. You were only in the South tower for the day. Like, you know, like, et cetera, et cetera. The kind of shit that's very different from what Janice knew Tanya's story to be. So Janice finds herself going into this state of shock. And when she comes out of it, she starts making phone calls and she starts telling people that the story that Tanya has been telling them for the past few years is not true. And that she's not the person that she had purported to be. In fact, Based on the fact that the lawyer kept calling her Alicia, her name's not even Tanya. The person that they had come to know did not, in fact, exist. So who is Tanya Head? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a lot. Um, Okay. So I mean, can you imagine? No, it's your friend, too. You're like, this is my really good friend. Well, yeah. And it's it's your really good friend, a bond forged in trauma. Right. Like it's a it's a trauma bond. And if that trauma doesn't exist, if she's making that up, then you don't have a bond. <laughs> yeah. Like well, yeah. I mean, if someone completely fucking lies to you, like just you like can... 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she did. So let me tell you a little bit about Tanya or as she's actually known, Alicia. Alicia Esteve, Esteve, that's correct. Yes. I'm doing Esteve, that right. Yeah, I don't know. Esteve. Esteve. Yeah, I'm always fucking that. Esteve Head, more known more commonly as Tanya Head, was born on July 31st, 1973 in Barcelona, Spain, to a rich and prestigious family from Mallorca, which is Mallorca. where she grew up. Mallorca, is that what it's called? Yeah. I should have known that. Double L. Uh, Mallorca, <laughs> Spain, where she grew up. I know my shit. I you know. Spanish one you know this. and two. Spanish you one and girl. two. Um. She was loved and she was frankly spoiled. She was the youngest of six children and the only girl. So she was the apple of her parents' eye and she was treated as such. Private school, lavish holiday celebrations, horse riding lessons. And then she liked them. So daddy gave her a horse, you know, all the things. Right. But despite this fortuitous upbringing, she still grows up with this sense of insecurity that her friends suggest stem from her body issues. She, um, she was a little shorter and a little heavier than the time suggested was ideal. And I, you know, you know what I'm talking about. We came of age in the nineties and I'm sure you remember you, you couldn't open a magazine without some wafy model, like assaulting you with your mental health, with her thigh gap, you know, like it was it's just like Kate Moss everywhere. You look everywhere, it's, everywhere you look, they're it's like, like an infinity mirror of Kate Mosses. It's just, it was just crazy. They were like, are you plus size, size six? You know, we are like, okay. yeah. so, you know, she's, she has some body dysmorphia disorders and she's self-conscious about her appearance. Join the fucking club. But however, you know, unlike those of us that cried in our rooms while listening to Tori Amos and just developed eating disorders, Tanya dealt with her insecurities a little differently. So she became a fabulist, which is just a really pretty word for a liar. Like, a big liar. That's a really pretty word for her. I love the word fabulous, and I will use it at every available wow. opportunity. 
Um, but but that's what she did. She lied. She lied a lot. She lied about rich boyfriends that she's juggling. She lied about jobs that she'd been offered, opportunities she had. She just lied her damn face off to the point that her friends no no longer really took her seriously. She lied about getting hit in the face with an airplane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she lied about getting hit in the face with an airplane. She lied about uh, being engaged to a dude. And then she actually married him <laughs> when he was dead that's 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 pretty extreme that is so, wild mm-hmm. yeah so in 92 her father and her brother were implicated in a national financial scandal that resulted in both of them serving time in prison which was undoubtedly traumatizing for tanya wait wait, wait. her her brother and her father both went to prison mm-hmm. whoa okay yeah um she was pretty young then we don't have a lot of information about what happened to her in the aftermath of the situation or really in her formative teenage years but we do know that she had a privileged and a pampered existence as a member of the wealthy and elite class in her community however she was in a very serious accident as a teenager she wasn't she was what a, she was in a serious accident oh i thought you said she wasn't a very serious accident i was like Whoa. <laughs> a very oh. serious accident is going to be the title of my memoirs <laughs> um, thank you for that inspiration You're so welcome. she is she was in a terrible car accident no one else was injured but she flew out well she didn't fly out of the car her arm was severed and it flew out of the car. It's fucking and crazy, had, by the mm-hmm. way. Yeah, I, I, no one else, like not a scratch on anybody else. Arm severed, flew out of the car. Insane. Um, they were able to collect it and reattach it. Uh, but, and she went on with minimal physical effects. I'm sure there was, you know, there had to be trauma from that. But the injuries that she passed off as coming from being in the South Tower 9-11 were actually from this injury that occurred while she was taking a trip to a local beach with her friends. Wow. So not the same, not the same, not not the same, very different. Um, And actually uh, like the guy that started Googling her and he was like, it doesn't look like your arm was burned. It looks like skin grafts. And it turns out he was correct. Mm. So when the New York times article dropped, the rest of the puzzle pieces began to fall into place. The story detailed that on September of 2011, Tanya was actually in a graduate program at Esade Business School in Barcelona, Spain. So so not Harvard or Stanford? So not Harvard or Stanford. Got it. Not, not that. Um, Spain actually celebrates the National Day of Catalonia on September 11th. So she wasn't in school that day, but she returned after the holiday with no injuries and no mention of having been anywhere near New York during the attacks. Wow. Friends from her time at Esade explained that Tanya was very smart and very competitive. And despite her obvious intelligence, she had a pretty vicious insecurity that led her to surround herself with people who couldn't compete with her. Mm. And when she came up against someone who did challenge her, she would find a way to get rid of that person. Whoa. What does that mean? uh, Not like kill them, but like she would, you know, be like, hey, we don't need this person in the group, right? This is why. Mm. And that explains how Jerry Bogax, who was the sort of person who was just very, he wasn't. Well, he's a dude for starters, but he was also, he wasn't, he didn't have an emotional bet. He tended to ask questions. He was very logical. Mm. And I think she felt that if she let him stick around in this group, that he would eventually figure out her figure. Totally. Okay. So she told everybody in the group that he was a nice person who wasn't working hard enough for the survivors network. And consequently he shouldn't be involved in a real level. And she convinced everyone of that. And they all voted him out. Wow. And she's good at it. She is an excellent manipulator. So her friends in New York are shocked. They're absolutely floored. And then they start comparing notes. And her friend, Linda, who, uh, if you watch the documentary about her called The Woman Who Wasn't There, uh, Linda was basically her best friend in the group, at least, or Linda believed herself to be her best friend. And for her, um, Tanya was absolutely her best friend, but she reveals some troubling behavior that she saw, like she'd been helping Tanya with flooding therapy, which is when the person who has been traumatized desensitizes themselves to the trauma by reliving it out loud over and over again. Ouch. Yeah. So um, Ta- Linda had been helping Tanya with that by being present while Tanya goes over this, this therapy, this incident. Um, repeatedly. And of course, for Tanya, this isn't actually traumatizing because she didn't go through this, but Linda did. Right. So when Linda says that she can't help anymore because it's adding to her trauma, Tanya lashes out saying that Linda is selfish, 
that Tanya's suffering is so much worse than Linda's that doesn't Linda understand how much Tanya has been through and how little <sighs> Tanya is asking of her. Um, Linda also talked about an incident when Tanya called her screaming and crying, saying she's at the St. Regis hotel in New York that Merrill Lynch had arranged a survivor's meeting for her and the families of the 11 coworkers that had died with her and that the families were angry with her for not saving their loved ones. So when Linda gets to the hotel, Tanya is leaning up against the side of the building and she's shaking and sobbing, saying over and over again, I tried to save them. But when Linda takes Tanya into the hotel and asks the concierge for a quiet place to like rest because the 9-11 meeting that had been arranged had gone awry, the hotel has no idea what she's talking about. They're like, sorry, so, the what? Wait, can we're we like the Hano? <laughs> can we talk about sobbing and shaking? Like, how do you get to that point when you're just so full of shit? Uh, you know, my guess is that she's an, my guess is that she has actual trauma she hasn't dealt with. Right. And that she's channeling it. Right. You know, I, I took a lot of acting classes and that is a thing. Right. Like, you know, um, there, it could be, you could call it method. It's a form of method. Method gets a little more real than that, but they are constantly asking you, they're like, you know, if you're trying to relive, if you're trying to portray a traumatic experience, access your own trauma and use it. Totally. Okay. Um, and for some people's therapeutic for other people, uh, it's reliving your damage over and over again Sure. for no particular reason. So, um, you know, that, that was, that was a bit of a red flag or at least it should have been, uh, but, but she didn't question her about it. And there are other smaller inconsistencies with her stories that her friends are able to see once they get together and they compare notes and they are left with the staggering conclusion that the Tanya head they know did not exist in real life. So they immediately remove her from her leadership position in the world trade center survivor network. And then they revoke her membership. That is fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there isn't much else they can do because she really didn't break any laws. What's crazy about this, she didn't make any money off of the scam. In fact, she spent large amounts of her own money to perpetuate this fraud. And she'd actually done some real good. She'd actually enacted some very positive legislation. Um, you know, she her the people who were interviewed admit openly that they felt very supported by her, that she had been able to give them emotional support that they hadn't been able to receive other, other places. Of course, you know, it all feels very fake and very dirty after this comes out, but yeah, there's there, she wasn't, she, they were trying to figure out an angle and they couldn't find one. Right. You know, they feel very taken advantage of and they want answers, but they're not going to get any because so they, you know, they call her and they write letters, phone calls, unanswered letters returned. And then she just disappears. So a few months after this happens, they get a bunch of people from the, from the um, survivors network, receive emails from an email account, a Spanish email account saying that she has committed suicide. Mm. No one could find her. And then she's seen in New York, in September of 2011. Like, they, <laughs> yep. They get her someone, someone from the survivors network, um, sees her, and actually, I don't even know if it's from the Survivors Network because the movie about her came out in 2007. The the movie, um, the woman who wasn't there, and the book. So <laughs> they covered oh. all the angles. So <laughs> someone was like, "That bitch is Tanya Head," and took video of her with their phone. And if you watch the the end of the woman who wasn't there, is the video footage of her, and it's it's very it's very clearly her. Wow. Um, all indications indicate that she returned to Spain. Once this whole thing was over and she was fired from a job in 2012, I believe, uh, when they caught wind of what happened in New York in 2007. But, you know, no one's seen her. No one's heard from her. No one really knows what happened. Oh, my God. Wow. That's the weird ass case of why you should go to therapy. And if you don't, <laughs> that shit's going to catch up with you. Damn. Okay. So let's consult the cosmos here. We don't have a birth time for her, which bums me out so much. I want to know these houses because I'm honestly fascinated by someone who fabulates. Is that right? Fabulates. Fabulates. Love it. Which is not, it's to, to, uh, <laughs> to loop back to our previous discussion. Sounds like flatulates, but mm. it's, it's not. Okay. 
Did you like that? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Did you like that? You know, yeah. Just, just uh, bringing a theme in here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's still a lot that we do know. And actually this chart is pretty fucking juicy. So let's jump in. We start with sun and Leo, which makes all the sense. Leo's shadow side is self-centeredness as in Mm. making yourself the center when me, 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 me. you are actually nowhere near the center. You are fucking mm-hmm. floating way out there in the periphery. And yet somehow you just fling yourself into the center. So that's, that's our starting point, but she election, the Reese Witherspoon movie is election. Okay. I'm I don't almost know. positive. Okay, okay. I've never, I don't know what that, <laughs> I don't know what that movie is. Okay. It just but, occurred to me. Yay. Great. So glad. Okay. <laughs> She also has sun opposite Jupiter in Aquarius. Aquarius is a sign that's concerned with, yes, you know about Jupiter. Mm -hmm. It's a sign that's concerned with social issues, issues that affect the masses, issues like war, for example. Aquarius also rules communities like support communities. So that's where Jupiter's hanging out and the energy that Jupiter's putting into the world. And like I said, Jupiter is opposing the sun. And we know that Jupiter is the biggest hype man in the cosmos. Jupiter's the go big or go home planet. Like think of Jupiter as Jerry from cheer before we found out that Jerry was a pedophile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His mad talk was so good. It was so good. Yeah. So, but yeah, God damn it. God damn it. But if you think of that sort of like Matt talk energy, that's Jupiter. Jupiter's just like, fuck yeah, you're the best. Go big. You've got this. So Jupiter's Matt talking the sun and Leo being like, you know, you can do no wrong. You should just fling yourself into the center, you know, while screaming into a megaphone. That's Jupiter. Yeah. Yeah. Do this. Yeah. Plus on top of it, Then Jupiter's like, oh, and by the way, I'm really concerned with societal problems and communities. So if you could just insert yourself into some of that shit, that'd be really cool. Then she has sun trying Neptune and Sagittarius. This is super important. Neptune in its shadow is the planet of illusion. Illusion can look like confusion on the one hand. And often this planet will create confusion or cause a person to feel confused, but it's also the planet of con artistry and lies. So that planet is making a very strong connection to Alicia's son, which is her identity. So now we have someone who lies and creates illusion around their identity. And what's more, because we're in Sagittarius, the sign of the international traveler, we have someone who lies about their identity in an overseas context. Mm. Sometimes astrology is just so fucking literal. It's really wild. Right. Like so on point where you're like, are you watching me? (laughs) I know. Yeah. Well, yeah, there are lots of, yes. Yeah. There are lots of theories about how astrology works, but it's sort of like we're all being filtered we're, we're all light that's go that's, um, shooting through these filters. And so it does make a lot of sense. The next thing that's crazy in her chart is that she has this chain of sextals. It starts with her son in Leo, which is sextal Pluto and Libra, which is sextal Neptune and Sagittarius, which is sextal Jupiter and Aquarius. So we've already talked about three of those. Let's talk about Pluto and Libra. Pluto hangs out in every sign for like a thousand years. I mean, between nine and 30 years. So around 20, depending on the sign. So in other words, it's a generational planet. It determines the energy and sort of ideologies of a generation. So let's look at what Pluto in Libra is concerned with, and then we'll connect these dots in this sextal chain. Libra is concerned with justice. Libras are often lawyers, judges, activists, etc. Pluto is a planet that oversees things like corruption, power plays, revenge, death, and obsession. So we have this connection between death, revenge, deep resentments, and justice, which is, I mean, it essentially sums up the themes of 9-11. 
Mm-hmm. And then we also, because of the obsessive nature of Pluto, have someone who's obsessed with all of that. And it's having a conversation with all the other planets in this chain. And that's the thing that's specific to Alicia. Lots of people have Pluto and Libra. I have Pluto and Libra. You have Pluto and Libra. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I do. Yeah, but not everyone has Pluto in Libra in this chain of sextals where all these planets are connected to each other. So, well, and that that to me is like an important point because I, I keep saying people will be like, uh, astrology doesn't make any sense. Like I'm a whatever, you know, I'm an Aquarius. My friend's an Aquarius and we're totally fucking different. I'm like, that's not how that works. Oh yeah. That's I, not how any of that when works. When people try to throw that shit at me, I'm just like, you're too dumb for me to talk to you. So <laughs> not well, my, my first instinct is to be like, okay, let me educate you on it. And then I realized, cause it's generally a dude yeah. and it's generally someone who's not interested in being educated on it. It's generally interested in someone who's like, I just want to show you that you're wrong. And I'm like, right. Oh, totally. All right. Yeah. Well, never mind then. Yeah, exactly. So that, okay. So all the, so here's this chain of sex tools. All these planets are talking to each other. Um, and that obsessed, that, obsession that we are getting from Pluto over these issues around justice and death is now talking to her son, which is her identity, Neptune, which brings in the con artist piece and Jupiter, which is like, hi, I don't mean a little bit. I mean, go all the fucking way, girl. Mm-hmm. Like well, mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Marry but him, marry him when he's dead. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But the deeper question here is why, like, why, why go to, why go to such lengths, you know, like why, why all of this? And when you want to answer a question like that, using astrology, in my opinion, often the best thing to do is to look at Chiron because Chiron holds the key to a person's deepest wounds and people who aren't aware of their wounds are being controlled by their wounds. So to review for anyone who maybe doesn't know, Chiron is known as the wounded healer in astrology, but I like to call it the wounded wounder. It's called the woundy wound. It's called the wounded healer because it's based off of this Greek myth about Chiron, who was a centaur born from rape and rejected by both his parents. Unlike the other asshole centaurs in the myth, who were super violent. He was known for his wisdom and understanding of medicine. And with that knowledge, he was able to heal himself, but more importantly, he was able to heal others by giving them what he himself most needed. And that was, you know, like, Oh, I feel, I feel rejected. So I help other people feel safe and seen. And when you think about Chiron astrologically, it also contains wisdom, but only if you're working on yourself and learning about your core beliefs and fears and triggers. If you are, then you can use that information to help yourself heal and also to help others heal from similar wounds. That's the power of Chiron. That's why it's called the wounded healer. But if you're not doing that, you're just leaving a fucking trail of doom and destruction behind you because you have this deep wound that you're not addressing. So back to Alicia, she has Chiron and Aries. And this is the wound of the self. Aries is the sign that's most associated with the concept of me versus a sign like Libra, for example, that's most concerned with the concept of us. Because Aries is associated with the first house, the house of identity and self, Chiron and Aries is a wound around feeling like you don't have a self that matters. In other words, you feel worthless. You feel like maybe you don't have a right to exist or that you lack a core self. So like, this is sort of a no shit question, but like, what do you think a person who feels like they lack a core self might do? Well, they might make a new self. (laughs) They might just fuck around and invent one. Yeah. And to combat those feelings of worthlessness, the self that they invent will probably do or be someone who others would really want to pay attention to. Hi, Leo son again. Mm-hmm. It's a bummer that I don't have a birth time because I'm so curious what her fourth house looks like and sort of more about what her childhood looks like, because even people who grow up in wealthy families, as we know from like the Menendez brothers, that doesn't mean that shit was cool. You know? Yeah. Oftentimes it means shit was not cool. Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, but here's more of what we do know. Her Chiron is conjunct Mars in Aries. Mm-hmm. 
There are a few things this could mean about the wound of self we just talked about. When Chiron is conjunct Mars, we're looking at people who do impulsive things when their wounds get triggered. So that's one possibility. Although this one, I mean, it's insane, but it almost sounds like, I don't know. Do you think it was impulsive? The creation of the self? I, you know, what I think is that it was like a... um like an avalanche. I think that it started with it started, like, I'm just, yes, I'm going to create snowball. this. I'm just going to create this, you know, this online persona. And then it felt so good. And people were giving her all of these accolades and all of this attention and all of the support. And she was able to support other people in a way that they liked her for that. And so in order to sustain it, it had to get, or she felt like it had to get bigger. Maybe she wanted more of it. Right. You know, like totally. So I think it snowballed to the point that like she got Maui'd. <laughs> like Good I think God. the minute those words came out of her mouth, Good Lord. some part of her had to know mistakes had been made. Oh my God. A part of me died when you said that. <laughs> so, okay. So I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So it starts as something that's a little impulsive and then it grows. That makes a lot of sense to me. So Mars is also the planet of direct action. And another possibility here is someone who has trouble asserting themselves authentically when you're fucking with someone's ability to be direct and act directly. And I think it's really fascinating to think about in this context, because if you don't feel like you have the right to say something like, you know, I have never gotten the attention I need and I need attention and connection with people. If you didn't feel like you could say that, which I think most people don't, you know, like, if, yeah, I don't, that's a difficult thing to say, especially if you're not working on yourself. Yeah. So I, and we've created a lot of shame around the idea. They're like, oh, attention whore. Right. Exactly. Uh, why are you seeking attention? Like, cause I like it. It feels good. Sure. Or also like you're rich. What do you need? You know, like you yeah. don't need attention, that kind of thing. So yeah. I can see a deeply wounded person being like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll just actually invent a new person who doesn't have to ask for attention because attention is just given to them. Yeah. Other Chiron conjunct Mars possibilities are sexual abuse, problems mm. with men or masculinity and wounds around the physical body, which is really interesting in light of not only the physical trauma that she experienced, but also her relationship to her own body and her body dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have that conjunction happening in Aries. Across her chart in Libra, we have Uranus and it's opposing this conjunction. Uranus rules Aquarius. And so it's concerned again with community, social and humanitarian issues, activism and politics. So right off the bat, I see someone who wants to change society through communities with their sort of like progressive activism. But because we've got this opposition to Chiron, their actions are actually being controlled by their wounds. So it's not actually about these social issues at all. It's about their wounds operating surreptitiously. And since Uranus is in Libra, the sign of justice, this Uranus opposition is going to be particularly concerned with politics and social injustices. So what looks on the outside like activism is actually um, just a way to try to resolve unresolved trauma. Oh, interesting. But I see more than that in this opposition. Uranus also overseeing, oversees things like shocks, being blindsided by things we didn't see coming, which again feels very 9-11-y. Yeah. But the other interesting thing about Uranus is that it's the planet that comes up with totally outside the box solutions. It's eccentric and original and inventive. Literally, Uranus is the planet of invention. Like, you know, inventing a whole new story of your <laughs> life. Mm-hmm. And that energy, the energy of shocks and of inventiveness is at odds with this Chiron wound because they're opposed. So it's opposed, it's opposing this lack of self and this feeling of worthlessness. And on top of that, Mercury in Cancer is then square to Uranus. Mercury governs how you think and communicate and cancer is super sensitive. So in general, when you see this, it sort of points to someone who offends others or in some way alienates themselves from communities in the way that they communicate. Like maybe they seem, this is just sort of generally when you see this aspect, like maybe they seem really out there in their ideas. Like they have weird ideas that people are, are just like, Oh no, you're weird, you know, or 
this person can't listen well because they're super distracted, which is very Uranian, or they're really smart, but they're arrogant. And that comes across when they talk to others and makes people be like, yeah, you're smart, but you're an asshole. And I don't want to talk to you. Well, it seems like there was at least a little bit of that in the equation. Right. But since we're in cancer, I would say this could, this is likely someone who wants to talk about how sad or emotional they are all the time. And it puts people off, which reminds me of that flooding incident. Yeah. You know, and if, if that were the case, I can totally see, by the way, like in their childhood, like in, in Alicia's childhood, how that could have exacerbated a sense of worthlessness because her attempts to communicate her feelings with people growing up likely just drove them away. But also she did communicate. And this is just like kind of zeroing in on this particular, you know, this, this whole case that we're talking about, she did communicate about some deeply emotional stuff. that was all a lie, of course. And it definitely did drive people away from her literally to the point she, that she had to like fake her death, you know, (laughs) like really unconvincingly, honestly, I'm surprised she didn't put more effort into it. It's her, like, I'm surprised she didn't have a funeral. That's a really good point, man. You know, you have some practice here. So yeah, I was saying work those chops, honey. So those are just some general rules when you're looking at Mercury squared Uranus. But another thing I'll say about this is that Chiron conjunct Mars and Aries is like, hi, I feel like I don't matter. And I don't have a self. It sends that message over to Uranus, who's opposing Chiron. And Uranus is like, oh yeah, I have a great idea because I'm super inventive. We'll just create a new self within a community. No big deal. And then that message gets sent over to Mercury in a square. And Mercury's like, great. And I'm the communicator of the group. So I'll really blast that shit to some big communities, but ultimately we'll drive them away because this square is connecting us. So fuck. And that Mercury is super important because as it turns out, Mercury is the top of a T-square in her chart. So to review, a T-square is a configuration in astrology where you have two planets or placements that are opposite each other, aka 180 degrees. And then you have a third planet that's squaring both of the other planets. A square is a 90 degree angle. So what a T-square represents is a sort of a central tension. And the tension is between the two planets that are in opposition. The third planet, the top of the T-square represents the point of resolution. It's where the energy of the tension gets released, which by the way, is neither good nor bad necessarily. Like it it can be either, it can be either good or bad, but because we're looking at the charts of criminals and people who are just doing like super fucked up shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like in this case, it's not a crime, but it's not chill. (laughs) Um, the, the release is generally not going to be fun or cute. Like it's not going to be, um, a tidy resolution. So here the tension is between Uranus and Libra, which to review is about invention and communities, political justice and Chiron and Mars and Aries. On the other hand, they're holding all the energy of this enormous wound of self. And the resolution where the tension gets released is mercury and cancer. And something I want to say about cancer in its strength, cancer is really caring and nurturing, which is part of this invention that she created, right? Going to all these support meetings, like support meetings are just like cancerian AF, but the shadow of cancer is emotional manipulation, making people feel things that are rooted in deception. So the way she's resolving the tension here is through manipulative communication, which could also be called lying, lying. But in specific, we're talking about manipulation around emotions and being a source of support when actually it's just all been invented in an attempt to ease that pain around feeling worthless. And because it's square to Uranus in the end, it has the effect of actually alienating her from communities. And because it's square to Chiron, I would also venture to say it only made her wound of worthlessness worse in the end. Oh God, I can only imagine. Can you imagine like, because they ran articles about this in her hometown. So it's not like, yeah. You can't just like Uh, go kind of lick your wounds back in, in Barcelona. nope. Nope. They went and interviewed all her friends. 
all her childhood friends. They put it in um, the major newspapers in Barcelona and then they did it in her in her hometown papers. And I was just like, babe, babes, it might be time to actually reinvent like a just a really normal personality, like just some chick named Barbara who lives in the Netherlands. I'm just saying it's really time to go to therapy to issue an apology to, you know, like to take responsibility, like stop running girl, you know? Yeah. I don't see her doing that. (sighs) Well, and here's the other thing I wanted to bring in. Um, narcissism, (laughs) this narcissism is an inability to apologize and the, and it's like, no one's reality matters, but mine. And so this whole thing around like having Dave marry her posthumously and, uh, telling, uh, Linda, right. That was her name. Her name. Yeah. Like you have to listen to me scream about the plane over and over again to the point where it puts your mental health in danger. And then I, and then I guilt trip you over it when it's too much for you. Like all of that is classic narcissistic personality disorder. So that one in particular was fascinating to me because I was like, like that could have been an opportunity to be like, I understand not, you know, like not everyone's there yet. It takes a certain strength. You know, it, it was a It was, it was an opportunity to like, even though it was fake to like build herself up in a way. Yeah. And instead she lashed out and I was like, dude, what is going on in there? Yeah. Like, well, you know, I, okay. So on my other, uh, I have another podcast called the Patrama party. We just did an episode on narcissistic abuse and, um, that the guest who I add on, um, John Lee is a trauma therapist and they were so, um, helpful in clarifying how this it's a, it's a mental, it's a, it's a mental disorder, right? It's like your brain truly doesn't work the same way that other people's brains do. And it is almost always, I think he's, I think John said that it's always the case. Um, it's always rooted in shame. Narcissism. I mean, yeah. And, um, when we look at Alicia's chart, that is exactly what you see. You see, this sense of worthlessness that is being sort of like you have worthlessness over here. And then you have this identity, this Leo identity over here. That's being Matt talked by Jupiter. It's like, it's just the exact recipe for a narcissist. It's so wild to see it like that in the chart. So clearly, you know, and you want to feel bad for that. Like I want to have sympathy for that. I do because that, I mean, right. I also feel like there's gotta be, we don't know a lot about her childhood, uh, except the fact that she was materially, at least, you know, very, very spoiled, but I feel like there's gotta be more to that. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I, I'm not suggesting anything. I don't know anything about her family. We all have wounds. We all are carrying wounds from our childhood. Um, and it, it could be something as simple as the fact that she was so uncomfortable in her physical form and that we know how mean kids can be. Sure. You know, I mean, it could be something as simple as that, but I feel like there's something going on from that that was so hard for her yeah. that I, you know, that it would take her, like, I don't even know if she knows how to look at that. Yeah. Buried yeah. it so deep. Right. It's so deep, which I think speaks to that moment where she was like shaking and sobbing outside of the hotel. Like, yeah, clearly she's traumatized by something. It just yeah. wasn't 9-11. Right. Yeah. And you just kind of can't make that shit up, honey. You, you just kind of can't. You can't do that. Yeah. Bad form. Well, okay. Do we know who we're doing next? J- Jamie something? Bishop? Amy Bishop. Amy Bishop? Amy Bishop. Okay. Yeah. Murderinos will know that one. And when I tell you that one, you're going to, yeah, that one. That's an, well, there is murder involved in this one. So if, if y'all out there are super interested in murder, we never stray too far for too long. That's right. So there's murder involved in that one, but also this is some crazy shit. Okay. This one's insane. It will be in the world of academia. So you and I will be a little more comfortable there. 
college girls. Uh, yeah, I was like, goodbye. Goodbye, academia. I hate you. <laughs> you love, I thought you loved UT. Oh, no, I hated it. Are you kidding me? No, I hate Well, you weren't I, like the girl who got up there and wrote about how she wished that a fucking hurricane or a tornado or something would knock Texas <laughs> off the planet. That shit was crazy. Oh, oh my God. Did she yeah. do that shit in scrubs too? I have to tell people. So I I did a um a master's program in creative writing. And when we there was a a woman in the program who hated the program. And when we did our graduation reading of our poems, she went up and read a poem about how she wished uh, <laughs> that um, a hurricane would come and just destroy all of Texas because fuck this program and fuck everyone. And let, let's be clear, like Texans in general really like Texas. Like yeah, that's yeah. sort of a thing. And Austinites in particular are very fond of their city. So I was surprised that she didn't get bum rushed. I was like, Mm, this well, is uh, no. not the time and place, my dear. Yeah. So proud no. of herself too. <laughs> she was like, fuck. Yeah. She like walked off. She was like, and I'm out. Mike and drop. scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had that vibe you know, to it. It was a rough program. I was like, you know, girl, I kind of get it. Like, it's weird what you're doing right now, but I get it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I loved grad school. I adored grad school, but I do like now that I'm looking back on it, I can look at things. I mean, I didn't love uh, being talked down to by dudes. Uh, yeah, that which I was, was smarter a, than it. That's a lot of what my program was. So that was well. That's a from uh, okay. So I've talked to a lot of women in grad school, and that's a lot of grad school. Yeah, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. it's a lot of a lot of grad school men telling you that your work your work sucks and you're an idiot. So yeah, yeah in my well, and the thing for me, it was a lot of men being like, "Oh, that's interesting," but here's your idea. I'm just going to use different words, and I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. like. <laughs> No, (laughs) but I will say, uh, having worked in, uh, the competitive fashion industry, women will do that shit to you too. If you give them the, Oh yeah. 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 I believe you. I remember you talking to me about it. (laughs) Yeah. It was a real fucking bummer. And this goes back to my theme that people are the worst. So, you know, there's some, there's some gems out there, but people, people do some whack-ass shit. This story, what are you talking about? It's wild. I Wild. know the one next week isn't going to help you out in that department either. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. And so to everyone else, um, thank you for bearing with us while we've had umpteen obstacles and Q's feeling better now. Hopefully our internet doesn't take a big poop again. Um, and in the meantime, uh, rate, review, subscribe, leave us a little review if you're into the pod and love notes. Uh, we like love notes. Send us a love note. Uh, oh, also, yeah. you could if you're if there's a um, if you have comments or suggestions or like or cases you want to hear about, yeah, email us at sign of the crime podcast at gmail, and uh, that's it, baby. Love that's you, it. girl. Love you too.